0: Hello, I'm Mike Gelb and this is the Consumer VC Podcast where we discuss the intersection of venture capital and consumer innovation. If you're enjoying the show, you can subscribe to my newsletter where you'll receive every new episode a week early. Head to theconsumervc.com and click subscribe. All content and episodes are for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not investment advice. Our guest today is Ashley Hartman, managing partner at Blue Side Ventures. Blue Side Ventures is one of the premier family-backed venture capital funds in the food industry, whose mission is to transform the food system into a better, more nutritious, and sustainable world. They invest at the seed and Series A rounds, and some of their investments include Factor, Meaty, and Foxtrot. We focus this conversation about the changing paradigms in consumer today and how she invests throughout the consumer value chain. Without further ado, here's Ashley. Ashley, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you?
1: I'm great. How are you? Thank you so much for having me.
0: Oh, thanks so much for coming on the show. I know we've been talking about this and jamming on this for some time, so really appreciate you being here. So let's start from the very beginning. What was your initial attraction to food and also to head into the food business?
1: Yeah. So our mission at Bluestein is to make the food ecosystem better, healthier, and more sustainable. So that's what drives me day to day. That's what drives our entire team day to day. And I'm passionate about two things. First, how do we heal our bodies with food, which is why food as medicine is a core focus for us. And then also, I love trying to understand how and why we eat. Food is the one of the most massive industries. If you think about it, it's $4 trillion across the entire supply chain, and it touches the entire economy but it's also extraordinarily personal and pervasive. It's something we think about at least three times a day, unless maybe you're intermittent fasting. And if you think about it, the food system is really magical. It's a feat that we can get fresh food from the farm to our plate. And there's so much tremendous opportunity for improvement that we think the future is just exciting. And that's what drives us day to day.
0: What do you think about the nature of improvement and what we can, you know, be doing better. And I and how this kind of relates into, I'd imagine, investment categories and how you just you think about the world. How do you break down kind of the the different categories that you want to be part of and the different business models that maybe make sense for to invest in?
1: Yeah. So we invest in the future of food. And so for us that means we invest across the supply chain from goods on the shelf, how goods get to the shelf and then how goods are made. It comes to life in four categories. One is high-growth consumer products. So, for example, we're investors in Vibe Organic, which is the leading immunity-boosting wellness shot. The second bucket we invest in is next gen Commerce. So that's how does food get to the customer in this new omnichannel world. We're investors in Foxtrot, which is a modern convenience store. We had a deep investment in a company called Factor 75, which is a prepared meal delivery company. The third bucket we invest in is digital technology that powers the industry at the back end. So like supply chain technology, retail technology, restaurant technology, for example, Four Kites, which is a logistics technology platform. And then the last bucket we invest in is food tech, which encompasses novel technologies um, across um, novel ingredients or how we get our food. So for example, we have investment in a company called Meaty, which is an alternative protein using mycelium. Also have an investment in a company called Mori, which is a shelf life extension technology. So that's kind of the scope that we take um, within food.
0: Cool. No, I I appreciate that. How do you distinguish between like the consumer brand side of things and also food tech? How are some of the growth, capex, and capital structures quite different? And you know what's kind of like the ideal result when investing in either of these categories?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. And for us, I just would take a step back for a second and say that we don't necessarily put them in different buckets because we're first and foremost market-backed investors. So we start first with the market opportunity and thinking about what the consumer wants. And then does it need to be served by technology or will a brand suffice? We don't invest in technology just for tech's sake. There has to be a really good reason for the technology to exist, especially when you're coming to market with a consumer product. So, for example, we're investors in a company called New Culture, which is a plant-based cheese company that's using fermentation technology to replicate casein, which is the main protein in cheese. And the time we made the investment, we were interested in the plant-based cheese set because no one had been able to solve taste or texture. But when we dug into the space, we found the reason for that was because they're missing casein, which is the key ingredient. So that pushed us to a food tech company But if you can solve it with a brand, that's much simpler and easier. And we would much prefer to invest, you know, in a brand than having to worry about kind of commercializing a new technology. But obviously, as you pointed out, the cap structure and the growth will look different. So if you have proprietary intellectual property, there's bigger potential upside, but it obviously takes a lot longer to develop the technology and commercialize and requires higher CapEx needs. But when we look at an investment, we want to build a large, sustainable business that moved the needle in the food industry alongside our mission. So that means that we have to think about how do we return the fund with any one investment, be it consumer or food tech.
0: There's so much emphasis when it comes to venture capital, when people think of venture capital, um, they think of, you know, pure software businesses, I sometimes hate the word technology, because because um, sometimes when people think to uh, say technology, what they're really meaning are, is software, but you know, food technology is technology, but it's not, you know, software businesses. Do you feel like there is it's still underserved, or there is insufficient amount of capital on the supply side within that goes into food tech and also invest in consumer brands in terms of the innovation and opportunity that there is?
1: Like is there uh room for innovation across the supply chain? Yes.
0: <laughs> yeah, but but also is there like a lack of capital do you think that are actually going towards, you know, food tech and consumer brands in this in today still?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that there's been an explosion in investment around just every category over the last 2 years, but I think the food industry is still underserved because it's not as I'd say sexy as kind of crypto or fintech or SaaS. And so there are, and I think you need with food, there are so many moving parts across kind of distribution, supply chain, getting on the shelf, retail, there's so many different channels that you really, it's important to have strategic investors alongside companies to help them grow. And I think there's still a dearth of focused food and consumer investors in the space. So I still think there's tremendous opportunity and we're only scratching the surface of innovation.
0: No, that's that's helpful. I know these are kind of the four different sectors, high growth consumer brands, next gen commerce, digital technology and food tech that you pointed out that are kind of all along the supply chain um, of food. How do you also think about themes that consumer wants? Is it kind of more top down where you're thinking of different types of opportunities that you would construct? Or maybe if if you want to start a business, you would do and then you kind of go out and find those opportunities? Or is it more so like bottoms up, would you say, where you actually are um, kind of more exploring and kind of understanding and kind of meeting with different founders and the founders are kind of bringing those insights to you?
1: Yeah. So we um, are extremely thesis driven. We invest in the earliest stages. So we invest in seed stage. So we think deeply about where is the market going? And we think broadly about it, not just kind of in any one specific category, but like broad themes. So for example, we're incredibly excited about food as medicine, really thinking through how do you heal your body with food, moving from intervention to prevention And that means how do you deliver on nutrition, taste, and price point without any trade-offs? That's really the holy grail that consumers are seeking. But that can span the entire supply chain. So on the consumer side, we're looking for the cleanest, most nutrient-dense food that really can support consumers' health and nutrition, like meaty, which I had mentioned, which is an alternative protein that replicates chicken, breast, or steak using mycelium, which is a novel ingredient. Or on the B2B side, we're invested in a gut health testing platform called BiomeSense, as well as a marketplace that's enabling food prescriptions for underserved populations with allergens and chronic conditions called free from market. So that's kind of a broad theme where we think about okay what is the theme and then we don't put restrictions on where we need to play. We look for the opportunities across the supply chain within that theme.
0: How also when looking at, you know, consumer brands and also food uh, food technology things that you know consumers consume right how also when you're evaluating an opportunity do you think about price how sensitive do you feel consumers are whether it's a alternative um, like an alternative protein for example or it's a you know high growth consumer brand that are that's differentiated in, in another way
1: yeah 100 price is a focus for us we're looking for products that can cross the chasm to mainstream that's the only way we're going to kind of move the needle on really making the food industry better, healthier, more sustainable is if it's affordable. So of course, we're investing in nutrition. So these are still going to be slightly at a premium to say the largest CBG players. I mean, like, let's face it, we can't compete with Oreos or Doritos, But there needs to be a path to get to mainstream adoption, and that requires a level of affordability. So when we're looking at a food tech company, we think very deeply around unit economics and can this technology scale to get to the point of mass adoption. And that's caused us to actually not invest in some companies that we think are just going to be premium products in niche markets because is that really going to move the needle on human health, A, and B, get a return on our investment um, if they can't really cross that chasm to be big businesses.
0: How also do you think about, on the distribution side, think about wholesale distribution and retail, we've seen now with discount retailers, you know, having organic sections, having bringing in premium brands, right? Walmart has been quite aggressive doing this. Target as well, bringing in... Digital brands or, or or brands that are working online. Do you feel like there's a bit of a blur when it comes to the consumer and like target and, and kind of target audience since the conventional channel and natural channel are kind of blurring? And does that make it harder to kind of pick and choose which actually avenues when you're advising brands um, to actually play in?
1: Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think most brands these days need to think about having an omnichannel approach. You can't think exclusively around DTC. Direct to consumer or just retail. And then you've got to think about within retail where is the right place for my product. And so I think that it for us, it's really about all about setting the unique go-to-market strategy for your business. There's no right answer of which channel you should go in, which retail you should go in that's across the board correct for every brand in every situation. So you need to integrate what is your vision? You know, what do you bring to the market that's unique with your playbook? How are you gonna go win in the market? With your engine, so what is the, what are the capabilities of your team that's unique to enable you to capitalize on your playbook, how you're going to win, and then realize your vision? So, you know, you really need to think about what is the right place for my product and how do I get an engaged consumer base up front? So, for example, one of our portfolio companies is Vive Organic. They're a two-ounce wellness shot. They did this really well. They started selling in coffee shops in Southern California first. It was an adjacent product very similar consumer to someone who'd kind of buy a coffee, uh, you know, in a third wave coffee shop. Then they went into retail, which the consumer was already familiar with them in the region. And then they were able to replicate this across markets. So it was really unique to their product and their strategy, how they kind of approached expanding. I think the peanut butter approach where you just kind of go everywhere all at once is not the right way to do it. I think you have to think very strategically about where your product lives on the shelf and which channels it should go in and which retailers it should go into.
0: That's helpful. That's helpful. I mean, obviously it depends what Um, um, it's obviously very brand dependent and which, which actually retailers you should go into. What I found interesting, I remember talking to one brand who went conventional, it was a premium product, but they went conventional first. I think think Costco might've been their first retailer that carried a lot of their products. And then they went back into the natural channel. And actually, I mean, consumers didn't mind that they were, you know, first, you know, conventional and then went to natural. There wasn't a, oh, well, this product isn't cool per se because it started off conventional, um, organic. So I think that it's quite interesting to see these blending of different distributions and just kind of understanding of where it actually makes sense to play or not play.
1: Yeah, I don't think there's a right place you can go anymore um, because I think consumers are accepting that there's going to be premium Products are not premium, but independent products and new emerging brands in all channels. And I don't think there's a negative halo anymore. So I think you're totally right.
0: I know this is dependent, but if you are maybe a digitally native brand and you are thinking about expanding into, it's a food product, of course, and you're thinking about expanding into retail. What are maybe some considerations that you should be thinking about when you're actually picking your channel?
1: Yeah. So I would think through, there isn't really, as we kind of have been talking about, there's no right answer. It depends on your kind of product strategy, your team. Some questions I'd kind of bring up to ask yourself about retail is, one, is there a natural place in the retail set where you're going to go? Or are you going to have to build a new category? Two, how does your price point compare in the set? Are you premium? Are you going to be in line depending on kind of which retailers you're choosing to go into? Do you have a margin structure to succeed? I mean, going... Retail obviously is a very different unit economic profile than going online. And then, how do you acquire customers at retail? What's your playbook? How are you going to build that kind of um, engaged consumer base who's going to take you off the shelf? You know, I always say the easiest part is getting on the shelf. The hardest part is getting off the shelf. So you really need to think through these questions and really have that strong strategy to make sure you
0: succeed. I know that Blue Sky Ventures it's very um, focused about food top down. I mean, from um, all the way from, you know, how the retail side of things, brands, also supply chain, really like the whole, but as you pointed out, these are a lot of different, you know, models and a lot of different types of businesses that you're actually advising and dealing with and investing in. How do you construct? Because I would imagine it's pretty challenging to construct approach portfolio construction. For example, when you aren't looking at similar types of businesses. It's, it's all the same theme, but, but they actually are different models. How do you approach portfolio construction generally?
1: Yeah, we have, I mean, we want to invest across the supply chain and that's a mix of having consumer and retail brand retail, you know, next gen commerce, um, companies that are potentially quicker exits, more capital efficient with kind of more of the food tech kind of novel technologies, longer timeline to exit, higher capex needs, but potentially larger exit sizes. So we think about kind of constructing the right mix. It ends up being fairly equal across kind of the entire supply chain and the four categories we invest because we have that kind of approach of like, how do we create a balanced portfolio, not overweighted in kind of any one area?
0: Can you give us like a rough timeline in terms of what that what that means and what the hope is on a return?
1: Yeah, so any one company we invest in, we want to be able to return our fund on. Um, and so that's kind of from food tech to uh, consumer. So we are looking for kind of big winners and sustainable businesses that are, as I mentioned, going to move the needle. But I think when you're when you're thinking about, you know, brands versus food tech, brands obviously can exit in a quicker time frame. anywhere from we invest in seed stage. So anywhere from kind of five, seven years, food tech takes a little bit longer to mature. Um, but we're hoping those can be much more capital efficient and have quicker exit timelines to have that kind of velocity um, in our portfolio.
0: How should brands also think about, um, whether or not they should vertically integrate. I've had a couple brands on the show that are fully, fully vertically integrated, love it, you know. wouldn't have it any other way. They can control their own production. And then I have other brands on the show and they're like, man, like that sounds crazy. Um, why would I want that headache? <laughs> um, and so how would you, as you're advising and, and investing in some of these companies, what parts of maybe the supply chain should they own and, and what parts should they not own?
1: Yeah, I think if it's, it, it, again, it kind of comes back to your strategy and how your kind of capabilities and how you're going to market like all fit together. But I think first and foremost, if you have a proprietary process, it's really hard to outsource that to a third party. So for example, Busy Coffee in our portfolio self-manufactures because they have a unique filtration process that enables them to have the best tasting product on the market. So they couldn't outsource that because no one else could replicate it. And this also gives them benefits around higher margins and enables them to innovate more quickly, but really it came down to them having that proprietary process. But I'd also point out that you don't have to vertically integrate from the get-go either. Busy has been self-manufacturing from the start, but our portfolio company, Factor 75, um, they were a prepared meal delivery company. They were highly capital efficient. They exited to HelloFresh and hit a nine-figure run rate on less than 15 million capital raised um, because they co-packed in the beginning. So they didn't have to outlay that capital expenditure to do their own manufacturing. And then once they got to scale, they moved into their own facility. So they were actually able to take learnings from the co-packer and, you know, all the kind of mistakes that the co-packer was making and then parlay that into their own manufacturing. So it cut down on so much wasted cost and figuring it out themselves that said, obviously, there was a trade-off in that in the beginning, it hampered, you know, on a small extent, quality and innovation in the earliest days. So you kind of have to just weigh the trade-offs on what kind of capital structure you want to um, have in your company and also how you want to go to market.
0: How should, no, and I, I, I really appreciate that example um, about Factor. Um, how should brands think as well about fundraising? And it's become a lot more maybe in vogue or, or popular as well to use kind of debt, debt when it comes to actually financing, especially when it comes to, you know, the working capital needs. But how should brands think about what equity dollars should be used for versus other ways of fundraising?
1: Yeah, I love this. Uh, love this question because um, I think you should think creatively about your capital structure and debt. You know, equity has a place and debt has a place. I think when you're hitting a potential recession or pullback or inflationary environment. You just need to be careful when you take on debt because it can really hamstring your business. So I think it's a huge asset, but you just have to make sure that you understand the covenants and kind of what you're getting into um, when you take on debt. But I think overall, um, especially in this environment, I think the promise of brands has always been more capital efficiency and quicker exit timelines, as we've been talking about. And that means that, you know, you just have to make sure that you're, you know, being capital efficient over time and raising at the right valuations. Um, so I think you should be making sure that every dollar is doing the most for you, whether it's debt or equity.
0: That's helpful. I mean, can you, can you walk us through as well what you're seeing at the seed stage and, and kind of describe the current landscape? And also, where should they be at that investors would like them, them to be at when they're raising a seed round?
1: Yeah. So um, at the seed stage, I think you are, you know, seeing more right sizing in valuations. And I think some, you know, founders are understanding that they're not tech companies and they are brands and consumer companies and they need to just raise at kind of the right valuation. That's going to make sense for both the investor and them. Right. It's really, you know, it's to the benefit of the founder to raise at the right capital structure early on because it gives you so much more flexibility to test and learn and make mistakes without having a target on your back that you've got to have to grow into this valuation immediately when you're not ready for it ahead of product market fit. So where we invest, you know, I think every kind of investor has their own model. We don't put a specific dollar figure or, you know, margin structure on a business um, that they have to hit in order for us to invest because we invest early and that makes means that it's different for different companies. I'd say that, you know, at the seed stage, you should be somewhere in the we look at kind of brands usually in the kind of million dollar run rate um, stage um, when we're kind of doing a first institutional round of capital. But that's very loose. We've done everything from pre revenue to kind of up to maybe three to five
0: million. When you see a brand that's in a million dollar run rate uh, stage, so they're obviously post launch, uh, they have customers. Maybe they're in um, a few retail stores or maybe it's only online. But what are kind of some characteristics that you have to see for that brand that you think then could become, you know, a $100 million brand in revenue?
1: Yeah, we look at when we're, we're looking at kind of the earliest stages, we look at a combination. Obviously, we have our kind of scorecard. You've got to look at everything. But it's really a combination of, A, what is unique about your product and what are you bringing to market that is differentiated? First and foremost, that's what we care about. How are you going to move the needle in the food industry? Then it's, do you have a unique go-to-market strategy in which you're going to come to market and be able to expand and build that engaged consumer base and start with an early adopter and then be able to cross the chasm? And then do you have the team, right? We're investing heavily behind the founder at the earliest stages, and that is so incredibly important to us. So it's really the combination of those three things that we look for. And then you layer on, do you have the right unit economic profile to enable you to expand and to really realize this? And do you have the right valuation structure? And all of those questions kind of come after.
0: How do you analyze, especially for on the brand side versus you know the food tech side where like the food tech, like there obviously is product differentiation or some IP there, but on the brand side, there might not be maybe IP. How do you kind of analyze product differentiation on that side of things?
1: Yeah. So I think, you know, obviously it's, you know, there's no kind of proprietary IP to a brand. So it's really about what are you bringing that's different to the market? So for example, you know, Vive Organic, they were one of the leading shots on the shelf. There maybe was one other brand, but they were really creating that category. And so that to us was differentiated. When we invested in Busy Coffee, there was very, very early days in cold brew coffee. Um, and so, and there were only self serve, single-serve products on the shelf. There was no one really servicing the kind of multi-serve at the right kind of price point for the customer. And no one was doing it successfully online. And Busy was the number one uh, brand on Amazon. And so there were some signs that they, you know, differentiation across kind of what they were doing. And there were ways that they were doing it with their unique go-to-market strategies and their way of kind of producing products that were differentiated that we felt, felt were sustainable advantages that would sustain over time.
0: I know we've talked a bunch about brands here. I know that's only part of it. How do you think as well about retail and how is consumer shopping maybe has for food uh, changed?
1: I, such a good question. Um, love thinking about kind of how consumers shop. So I think I think retail is changing dramatically and you're seeing omnichannel shopping really start to mature. So with online shopping, be it delivery or pickup, consumers are spending less time in the store, which means less time for serendipity and less time for impulse purchases while you're shopping for staples. So convenience is where you're getting consumers to go to the store which means you need to target retail and merchandising to meet specific impulses, be it a meal solution for tonight, curated selection for discovery, or other kind of exciting experiences. At the same time, consumers are influenced from so many different angles right now. So it's really all about creating strong content and community to engage consumers across channels and give them a reason to shop. That's why you're seeing the biggest retailers investing heavily behind content going deep into their own recipe apps, for example, or partnering with TikTok influencers. I mean, you just saw Walmart announce this week that they're partnering with Roblox to launch you know, stores in the metaverse to give kind of one salient example. And one of our portfolio companies that's doing this really well is Foxtrot, which is reinventing the corner store model. And it's pulled all these pieces together. They have this kind of perfectly curated selection that caters to impulse purchases, like meal solutions, coffee, alcohol, as well as discovery. And this all has kind of a local brand bent to it. And so they've been able to create this super strong community of loyalists kind of around the brand. So that's kind of just one example of like an area that we're really excited about.
0: No, that's that's really interesting. And as well, I mean, I love that idea of, you know, kind of reinventing the the convenience store or the corner store and also putting, of course, local brands in there and it's not just, you know, national um, ones. How did you meet Andrew Blueside and what was kind of the founding journey of Blueside Ventures? How did it all come together? Yeah, so Blue Side Ventures
1: has been around eight years, started in twenty fourteen, around kind of two um key insights. One, consumers are changing what they're eating, right? Paleo, plant-based, keto, all of these terms were very much at the fringe in 2014. Now they're totally part of the mainstream. And then second, consumers are changing how they're getting their food from shopping in a grocery store to being able to order online, from going to a restaurant, picking up your food, to having thousands of um, options at your fingertips. So that was kind of the genesis to Bluestine Ventures. Andrew's mom, Eileen Gordon, at this time was the CEO and chairman of Ingredion, which is a Fortune 500 ingredient company. And she was leading a complete transformation of that business, but obviously happening at a very different stage and scale than the earliest stages of the innovation happening in the food industry. So the Bluestines really wanted to have an impact with their time and dollars, um, which is what brought them to kind of early stage food. So that's kind of the genesis of Bluestine Ventures, and we've been off to the races ever since. Andrew and I started working together six years ago and kind of opportunistically met and shared a similar passion for food and commerce and um, brought a complementary set of skills. So Andrew came from a consulting background, very strategic, um, obviously his mom and had you know, her expertise from kind of running 100 Food Company. And then uh, I come from more of the operator's background, running and scaling my family's manufacturing business, which I did for four years and leading our expansion plan. So um, we brought kind of complementary points of view, but a very similar passion. So it's been a a really, um, really fruitful partnership.
0: That's awesome. That's awesome. No, I always love hearing, you know, the founding story of the fund as well. You mentioned, you know, paleo and, and other diets that were very popular, maybe back in 2014, or, you know, were kind of on the fringe back in 2014. And now they're, you know, mainstream now, um, a lot of people are maybe aware of paleo. What are maybe some terms, diets that maybe are on the fringe now that you think are going to be popular or interesting in the coming years that are going to be more kind of mainstream or just maybe just like a way of thinking?
1: Yeah, I think um, if I knew what was going to hit, I would probably, you know, be able to, you know, predict every kind of product and brand that's going to come to market, right? Like, um, I wish I could predict kind of what was going to hit with consumers exactly and precisely. But I think that for us, we don't really invest behind trends, you know, paleo or keto. What we invest behind is whole food nutrition. And we think that's the sustainable way because you can pull Lingo on and off packages, but really, where the consumer is moving is whole nutrition. Food is medicine, and that's what we want to invest behind. I think you're going to see a lot of you know more diets, just like keto and paleo, kind of come in and out. But we don't want to bet on that diet. We want to bet on the you know long term trend, which is what those diets are kind of fitting into.
0: No, it's really helpful, and also makes a lot of sense. What's one thing do you think that you would change about? venture capital, or even about, you know, what's perceived when it comes to investing in food?
1: Good question. What would I change about venture capital? I mean, first and foremost, I need more time. If someone could give me more time, that would be great. There's so much code switching during the day with venture capital, since we're managing, you know, a huge pipeline of deals, a whole portfolio, raising capital, our own strategy building. It's really quite a lot to do with a small team. So if I could have a magic wand, I would just give myself a little more time.
0: What's one book that's inspired you personally, one book that's inspired you professionally?
1: Ooh, so many books. Um, I'm an avid reader, so I love thinking about this. On the professional side, uh, one book that's really uh, been an unlock for us as a team is the book Traction. It's really helped us restructure our team, how we operate, um, set goals. It provides a great roadmap, so I highly recommend that. Um, I'd also give a shout out to Seven Powers for giving a really good framework around thinking about sustainable competitive advantage for any company. On the personal side, one book I recently finished was Endurance um, that was super inspiring. It's a story of Edward Shackleton, who went to traverse the Antarctic with a crew of 27 men in 1914, but the boat sank. And so it's a true story that reads like fiction. Uh, such great themes of perseverance, grit, strategy, leadership, and teamwork. I mean, he was able to kind of pull together his team, and every single one of his men survived in spite of terrible, terrible odds after traveling like eight hundred miles in the worst conditions known to man. So um, it was it was definitely really inspiring.
0: No, I, I I appreciate you sharing these three. I'm really excited to add them to the book list. My final question to you is: what's what's one piece of advice do you have for founders?
1: Well, founders inspire me every day, so I always take advice from them. But if I could give uh, one piece of advice, it would be your job is to set the vision, hire great people, and don't run out of money. And all three are equally important, and you can't let any one leg of the stool uh, fall down.
0: Love it. Love it. No, I love that. Set the vision, hire great people, and don't run out of money. Ashley, this has been terrific. Thanks again so much for your time.
1: Thank you. This is such a fun conversation. appreciate you having me.
0: Thank you. And there you have it. It was such a pleasure chatting with Ashley. I hope y'all enjoyed it. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcast. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter, at mikegelb, and also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. Thanks for listening, everyone.